Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, AKA Possibility Man. We're committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Dixon. He is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. He's also an award-winning author and his books and articles address the healthcare crisis and what we can do to fix it. He's the founder of Simply Psych and other businesses. He also uses novel approaches when working with patients, which includes using men, using medications minimally. Dr. Dixon, welcome to the call today. Thank you for having me on, Stephen. I'm so okay. glad to be here. Look here, I've been looking forward to talk with you for several weeks now. Your Simply Psych caught my attention and I said, I gotta talk to him, so here we go. <laughs> hey, look, but first I wanna make this program note to our listeners and our viewers. Follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you find it. Your support matters and is appreciated. Dr. Dixon, you made the decision to go to medical school. When did you decide to pursue a medical education? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I grew up from very humble beginnings in East Texas. And uh, one of the benefits of having a uh, few channels is that I really got into uh, ABC. And uh, at the time, there was Doogie Hauser, you know, the young doctor, the kid doctor, right? And and Beverly Crusher on The Next Generation, Star Trek, The Next Generation. And I've always loved uh, the idea that you could help people feel better. And so, yeah, I, I knew from a really early age I wanted to do something in that realm. Um, and um, and then I just kind of uh, started um, plotting and planning from there, went to medical, uh, went to undergrad in medical school, and then the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. So at what point in medical school do students specialize? And do you recall... You're, or maybe you've already said it, the moment you said, you know something, I'm going to do psychiatry. Yeah, so great questions. <laughs> it's really funny. So when I started, um, uh, when I first had dreams of medicine, I wanted to be the overall doctor, the family doctor, right? So uh, because that's that's what I saw on TV. And uh, I got to my second year of medical school. I did a rotation, um, a year-long rotation in family medicine. And I was like, it's okay, but... It, it goes too fast. So many of the family physicians that are out there, they have to not only think really quickly, they have to get through a lot of patients in the day. And so when I did my psychiatry rotation and I saw that psychiatrists have time to actually sit and talk to people for way longer than family doctors, I said, this is, this is what I want to do. And so, yeah, third year of medical school is when I decided. Third year, and you picked a very, from my standpoint, a very challenging specialty, psychiatry. Um, was it was it tough? Was it a natural fit, or was it something that you kind of grew into? Yeah, I, I feel like it was a natural fit. So I was a psychology major in undergrad because uh -huh. I, I love the idea of learning about psychological theories and how people think and how they decide what they're going to do. And so that was that was really interesting to me. Um, but also, yeah, I my temperament, my personality is that I don't like to rush. I'm not an emergency guy whatsoever. Like if you run up to me and oh, I'm bleeding and I need this, that, and the other, I'm like, uh, uh, that's I don't I don't like to get my blood pressure up. And so. Um, I like time to sit and think. And uh, and so psychiatry gave me that opportunity. And it's it's been really interesting because you're right. Psychiatry is very, very complex. And it's one of the reasons why it's it's a four-year residency, which is technically longer than a family medicine residency or an emergency medicine residency, because it is there's so many nuances to human behavior. 
Mm -hmm. So Dr. Dixon, you know, I'm sure that um, our listeners and viewers would be curious because a lot of us don't get a chance just to talk with a, a psychiatrist, you know, just like a person, you know what I mean? So this is gonna be like a, 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 the kind of question that the average person would want to know. When you meet people, do you have to, to practice to yourself, I'm going to turn off my psychiatry training now and just be a human being? Yes. So we are actually trained to do that. That's part of the training is uh, when to kind of be on and when to be off. Some people call it, you know, wearing a mask or wearing a, a uniform or a coat. And then when you come home, you take that coat off, right? So that you can uh, tap into um, uh, your kind of your your openness with your family and your friends. Um, it's one of those things where, especially nowadays, because there's so much going on in the world, uh, there's so many stressors that are going on, uh, you have to be very mindful, be very thoughtful about what role you're playing for that person at that time. So for example, I'll go out to eat and, you know, if I speak to somebody at the table next door, if I'm in an elevator and, you know, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a psychiatrist. And a lot of people will then, because I guess I have a friendly face, I don't know, they'll be like, oh, let me ask you X, Y, and Z. And so I make sure to go ahead and answer their question, but I do it in a way that uh, makes them, makes it known that I'm not your treating person. Like they'll say, hey, you know, I've been struggling with a whole lot and I'll commiserate. Yeah, lots of people are going through things. And then if if there's a line, uh, if someone says, hey, well, you know, I need someone who, then I make sure to say, all right, go to this website or go do this thing. But I am not your psychiatrist. I, yeah, uh, we, it, it makes it a lot easier to take that hat off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that uh, about the societal thing that, you know, walking in an elevator, someone may want to ask questions. So how are we doing, especially today, it's 2023, you know, we, we entered COVID-19, we're still in COVID. How are we doing as a society and as a world with our mental health? Yeah, yeah, Stephen is not. Going I know that's a big great. question. But it is. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's not going great, but uh, but mm -hmm. I also don't want people to despair. So um, going into COVID, um, the the rate of use of our services was already high. You know, there were lots of folks who were seeking out therapy and seeking out psychiatry, um, and because the mental health network is so underfunded um, through insurances from the government from individuals. Um, yeah, we were, it's an underdeveloped sector of our society, right? And then we go into COVID and we go into all the kind of um, uh, discussions about race and gender and equity and all this stuff. And all of our sympathetic nervous systems are heightened, right? We're all on edge because, it, it, yeah, it's just a very stressful time in 2021 through 2023. And so, yeah, so people aren't doing all that great because when you go into fight or flight mode, that's you're you're stuck there. Like people are literally like on, you know, not eating very well. They're not sleeping very well. They're consuming more or uh, detaching more because those are all um, trauma responses. Those are all responses to stress. Mm -hmm. And so the key is I want people to recognize that, hey, I need you to pay more attention to what you're doing, pay more attention to what you're buying, pay more attention to what you're consuming, because, you know, not everybody is listening to this awesome podcast when they should be. Instead, they're watching all the the negative, awful stuff that's out there, and that's just making things worse. Mm -hmm. So is it like, you know, we've always had mental health issues in mm -hmm. our society, but COVID brought a lot of stuff to the forefront. So we are seeing more of that now. Is it like that? 
Yeah, I would say I think it's partly COVID, but it's also partly we're more connected than ever before. So remember when I was talking about Doogie Hauser and Star Trek The Next Generation way back in the day, we had like three channels, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS. And because that we only had those three channels, we only got certain types of information. It was, you know, it was very vetted. Um, and so as a result, you didn't know half the stuff that was going in, on in the world, because if they didn't give it to you or you didn't read, read it in your local newspaper, you didn't get it at all. And there was some protectiveness, uh, some protective factors to that. Well, fast forward to 2023, y'all, we get news everywhere on our phones, on podcasts, on the TV, um, uh, newsletters from your neighbor. I mean, it's literally information coming from everywhere. And so when you add in COVID, you add in all the other stuff that's been going on, everybody's getting hit so often with uh, dopamine producing things. And so, yeah, I think that contributes, you know, social media is a double-edged sword. And so when we're getting mm. all of this information, I think that's contributing to our being on edge all the time. Yeah. So in terms of mental health, um, issues, what kinds of things, because someone may say, you know, um, that happens to somebody else, mm -hmm. but not me. What are some specific kinds of things that may give a person a clue that something may be going on? Yeah, the one thing to remember in, in the world of psychiatry, it's not a disorder unless it's dis, it's a major disruption to some domain in your life. In other words, like you're having trouble at home or at school or, you know, it's a major disruption. So in other words, there's a whole bunch of normal, quote unquote, in there. So, um, for example... You know, if you get fired from your job and you're sad, that's normal, right? Because you've invested a lot of time, energy, and effort. If you get fired from your job and you're sad and you can't get out of bed for two weeks and you're thinking about hurting yourself, then that is abnormal. That's something that you need to reach out to somebody about. And so that's that's the hiccup is um, knowing what the symptoms are, knowing kind of what's expected versus not expected. And so anxiety is the most diagnosed disorder in all of the disorders that are out there, anxiety. And it has a very specific definition, not just worry, but it's excessive worry. And so all of those little nuances, like teaching people about those nuances be between the symptoms is really important. It's just hard to get that kind of teaching. Um, you know, it's hard to get that out there so that people know that most of what they're going through is expected. Mm -hmm. So human beings re respond, and I, I believe maybe all animals, including dogs and cats, mm -hmm. um, respond to certain societal threats in a certain way. So let me let me try this out, because you just said something that's very important, because I interpreted what you said to say that there's some things that are normal, mm -hmm. and some things may indicate a problem. Correct. So if you're, if you're walking down the street, I'm asking you now, walking down mm -hmm. the street and you see a rattlesnake, and all of a sudden your heart began to palpitate, you know, and you feel anxious and scared, you would say that's that's not a big deal. That's that's normal. <laughs> Correct. That is a hundred percent normal. You're, you're supposed we're built that way. Yep. Okay. All right. So um, so now what if then two weeks later you're in bed, you're sleeping, and you can't sleep because you're seeing that same rattlesnake? Would that indicate something else, or is that also you know, from the previous experience. Correct. So it could be that that becomes abnormal. Absolutely. If it disrupts a major domain in your life, it's worth looking into. So yeah, so if you stop sleeping, uh, because you keep seeing this vision of a rattlesnake again and again, and then you refuse to get out of your bed, or you can't go into work. Absolutely. That would mean that you're um, getting closer to being labeled a disorder. And anytime you have a disorder, like generalized anxiety disorder, then you need to go see somebody because they can help you work through that.
Okay. So what if anxiety is not treated? Is that, you know, something that a person should be concerned about? Oh, that if they have anxiety that lasts for 10 years, 20 years. Yeah. Why is that? So the, the best way to think of it, um, uh, lots of folks have cars and I want, uh, and to use the analogy of a car, imagine if you were driving your car all the time at uh, 90 miles an hour, you're, you know, putting, uh, hitting the gas pedal. And when you park the car, you put the emergency brake on, but you put a brick on the gas pedal and you kept the, the RPMs going. Well, everybody agrees that's a bad idea. You're going to burn your engine out at some point. That's the exact same thing that happens with anxiety. If you don't treat it, um, you will literally burn yourself out. You will burn out your uh, your biological systems, your psychological systems. It's going to make it very difficult to sleep. It's going to make it very difficult to, uh, to maintain relationships. And the thing is, most people are like, oh, I don't want to be on medicines. And I'm like, y'all, you don't mm -hmm. always have to be on medicines for everything. There are great therapies that work for anxiety, but you can't start the treatment if you don't uh, acknowledge that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. So what is depression and how does this differ from, let's say, anxiety? Yeah, so depression, um, there's different levels of depression, depending on the DSM. So the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is basically a, a book that we use as mental health clinicians to be able to describe things in the same way. And so, and there are different types of depression, uh, but to distill it down is basically where you have a sense of hopelessness and sadness, um, difficulty sleeping um, versus anxiety, which is excessive worry, muscle tension, difficulty concentrating. And there are overlaps between those two things. And that's why it's really important to go talk to somebody because um, they're trained in how to tease those things apart. Are, are these symptoms more depression or more anxiety? You know, like um, uh, if you are excessively eating, that could be from anxiety or it could be from depression. And so having a trained professional um, uh, put things in context, that's how you make sure that you get the right diagnosis and then lead to the right treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to stay with this a little longer because I, I really want people to hear you on this and, and to you know see what's what's best for them, what actions they should take if they find themselves in this situation. Um, I, I went to my medical doctor, I don't know, some months ago for my annual physical. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was kind of surprised because they asked me to complete a social health questionnaire. I'm like, social health. And on it, it asks things like, you know, are you gaining weight? Are you tired of your sleep? Um, you know, uh, on a scale from one to 10, how do you feel? And why, why is my medical doctor asking me this? So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Dixon, why is my medical doctor asking me those social health questions? Yeah, we have a better appreciation of how other external factors affect your biology. So, you know, the doctors of the 70s, 80s, early 90s, they were really good at all the biological systems. I mean, they can they can manage diabetes to a T, they can manage high blood pressure. Uh, but one of the things is they didn't always con uh, um, uh, consider all of the kind of social, they call them social determinants of health. It's, you know, how much money you make. Um, do you live in a situation where um, your voice can be heard, where you feel safe in your neighborhood, all of those things, because all of those things can affect how your blood pressure works or if, um, if your blood sugars are under control. And so a lot of doctors and medical schools are now in, in residencies are now trying to put that training in there to, uh, to change the paradigm of how doctors are trained and, and what they think about. And so, yeah, so I'm glad that your doctor is doing that. Um, for what it's worth, as, uh, as a psychiatrist, we've been doing that for decades. But, you know, I, I'm just, <laughs> I just throw that out there to you. Right. Yeah. So, you know, but if a person goes to their family doctor, mm -hmm. 
Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, is that a safe place to, to tell, to actually admit, you know, something I've been feeling helpless, you know, mm -hmm. I've been feeling down for like months. Is that a safe place to start that kind of conversation? It is. So every physician, um, we, we kind of take an oath, but it's also implied an ethical uh, obligation that we can do no harm. So if you come to us, regardless of who you are, what you believe, what your background is, it is our ethical duty to give you the best care possible. And so, yes, that is a place where you can safely discuss whatever you need to. So, and and especially as a psychiatrist, I tell folks, you know, uh, not only is this a safe space, I that it is my job to support you um, as best as possible. And so, yeah, we want to hear everything. We want to hear about intimacy issues. We want to hear about insecurities. We want to hear about everything because all of those those ideas that you have, all of the experiences that you have will absolutely affect your, your mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. So um, society, how are we responding? Now, we know, I mean, gosh, you, you know, you click on your, 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 your computer, You'll see all kinds of things on mental health services and the like, but are we as a society responding? Are we stepping forth and saying, you know, I can use help or I want to investigate this thing? How are we doing in terms um, of responding, you know, to our situations? Yeah. So it's one of the reasons why I love that you are called the Possibility Action Network. So yeah, more people are acting on a desire to be more mentally healthy. And that's great. You know, they're clicking buttons, they're reading more websites, they're doing more podcasts, they're on. So all of that is great. The hiccup is. Um, anything worth having takes investment in time. And as a society, we are more impatient than ever. We want that quick fix. And um, in therapy, there is no quick fix. Even with medicines, there is no quick fix. And so that's where the hiccup is. Our expectations are not reasonable. Uh, and that's going to be the next big uh, hurdle for us to get over as a society. So yes, we're more interested than ever, which is awesome, but we don't want to uh, necessarily wait and put in the work. Uh, and that's not awesome. Mm -hmm. So in terms of using mental health services, uh, let me see how I can ask this question. I want to be delicate here. Uh -huh. <laughs> in terms of responses, you know, from people, um, would you say young people are more readily willing to step up and say, or would it be older people, senior citizens are willing to, I'm just wondering, or, you know, are there ethnic groups or cultural groups? And where are, you know, how do groups respond? Yeah, if great you don't mind question. diving into that for me. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would say on its face, younger people are seeking out mental health care services more quickly than older people. Um, white people are seeking out uh, those services more than black people. Um, uh, you know, straight people probably more than gay people. Um, but it's a all of these all of these uh, nuances are oftentimes directly related to the ability to pay for services, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, yeah, and uh, we can get into a whole discussion about healthcare finance, um, mm -hmm. but uh, but yeah, so that that's one thing. And then stigma is the next thing. So for years and years and years, especially as, you know, um, baby, boomer, baby boomers and millennials and, you know, the different classifications are getting older, um, the the ethos of work and the ethos of shame uh, are are changing. And so a lot of my older folks are like, hey, no, 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 I was raised to keep that to myself and raise myself up by the bootstraps and not talk to anybody. And so breaking through that, that kind of social norm is a lot more difficult, but I do start, I, I am starting to see more and more 
uh, folks of that generation saying, hey, I need help or, hey, I just want to I just want to sit and talk and process the things that I've been through. Mm -hmm. Can people get better, Dr. Dixon? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very much of that. The mindset uh, that we create a lot of our um, gains and we also create a lot of our losses. And so we live in the, the best country in the world. Um, the, the U.S. is an amazing social experiment. It is not perfect by any means. And we've done a whole bunch of bad stuff in the past. Uh, but I'm very, very hopeful for the future. And I'm hopeful for the individual if they're given good information. Like in, in general, Stephen, when people are giving good options, like good thorough options, they choose well. I think the one of the hiccups is most people don't know what their options are. All right. Yeah. You know, I, I read I read some of your work. I read your article that you published in a journal and was republished um, on a website. And I know your book. And you've been kind of transparent. So I'm not, this is not a sneaky question. I want people to know mm -hmm. that I'm trying to sneak something. You've been transparent about your um, wellness journey in college and you know, considering leaving your job. Can you share with us what was going on and, and what you did about that? Yeah, so my life has been very interesting. And I'm, I'm now that I look back on it, I'm like, wait a minute, um, I, I, I learned so much, I would not go back and change it. But, you know, I didn't realize how poor we were. So growing up, like we were super poor, almost to the point where we were homeless. Um, but my mom was able to make it work, right? But there were times when we didn't have lights or gas or water, and we just, we we persevered through. And through that whole entire uh, part of my life, uh, education was just so critical. And I had teachers who believed in me, and I had parents who believed in me. And and when they said, yes, you're magical and special and wonderful in every way, I, I truly believed that. Um, and, uh, and so, but they also taught me, you know, go to work. And if you work hard, you will get what you want. Well, that's a lie because, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went through undergrad, put myself in lots of debt at a great school, um, and then went to medical school and put myself into more debt and went into a specialty that is underpaid, uh, compared to other specialties. And then I get into a healthcare system that doesn't understand what I do. I live in a society that as a black man, gets paid less because I'm a black dude. Uh, I think black men last I saw made 72 cents to the dollar that every white man makes, right? And, and but I'm working two and three jobs. I'm doing everything that I can, um, you know, to work in that system to the point where I was burning myself out and having panic attacks and having to go see my therapist. And yeah, and I was like, this is this is not sustainable. This is not healthy, it's not sustainable. Um, I need to go build a better system and I need to build it more transparently. And so that's why I started my companies. That's why I started my practice. Um, I do my best not to have an echo chamber of people of yes, men and women around me. I want folks who challenge me. So I still, you know, I try to reach across the aisle and have uh, a big social network and try to treat as uh, many people as possible. Um, the key is that I don't want to lose where I came from because I mean, yeah, those those humble beginnings are a, a great way for me to stay in contact with who I my my authentic self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I want to look more closely at the healthcare industry mm -hmm. because in your writings and uh, you know you're the special you're the specialist. I get this impression as wait a minute he is saying that. There was an old model mm -hmm. in healthcare. So I just want to get, get a handle on this old model. Then we'll look to the new model. Then we'll look to your reforms in a moment. So would you explore with me? What was this old model that you allude to in your writings in healthcare? 
Yeah, so the old model, so um, uh, the there's lots of books on how the third-party payer and how the Medicare system all came into being. So I'll, I'll let uh, your listeners and readers go and just find all that stuff. But essentially what happened is um, uh, their doctors had a monopoly on healthcare and they were jacking up the prices and doing all sorts of stuff. And one of the ways to tackle that was to create a third-party payer system where you would buy insurance And then the insurance would help to kind of um, diffuse costs and be kind of a check on the marketplace of physicians. And so um, and so that, you know, Medicare was 1965. um, uh, And then over the course of uh, 30, 40 years, we have an explosion of third party payers like Blue Cross Blue Shield and Aetna and people and they would they would market it as, hey, in order to get good care, you need to be in network. So join our network. So you'll pay a premium to the network. And then as you get care, we will pay the doctors and keep them from, you know, quote unquote, you know, price gouging and all this stuff. Well, that when you do that, a couple of things started to happen uh, in that old model, which is people start to game the system because people are going to people. Right. And so um, someone decided in that system that procedures are worth more than non-procedures. So in other words, me cutting on you is more is worth more than me talking to you. And as they did that, when they built that into the system, you get a uh, because human beings are incentive based creatures. Um, if you get more money for doing a certain action, then that's where a lot of doctors are going to start going. That's where insurances are, are going to start paying. And so you create the system where um, folks like me don't get paid as much. And so that's the I old system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I want to look more closely at that because I'm thinking back to, let's say some Westerns. I'm going to pick one, Gunsmoke, uh-huh. you know, from back in the day. So the doctor on there, Dr. Adams. Uh, when someone went to see Dr. Adams, Dr. Adams, they said, well, how much? So, oh, you doc? Docs would say five cents mm-hmm. and they paid doc five cents. Was it ever like that in the early 20th century? It was. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was direct pay. I mean, and if you couldn't pay, you would uh, work it off in the kitchen or you would give them mm-hmm. a chicken or yeah, it was a direct pay model. But one of the hiccups is that uh, the information, because there was no internet, the information mm-hmm. was uh, was locked into a social class. So generally doctors were only white dudes. And as a result, you know, women weren't in medical school, black folks weren't in medical school. Uh, it became a, uh, in, in business terms, it became its own little guild. Um, and then mm-hmm. when medicine started to try to expand, right, there were, you know, black medical schools, and they were starting mm-hmm. to force women uh, to allow women to be in medical school. Um, at some point, uh, business forces being what they are, uh, someone said, okay, well, we can't, you know, we, we need to try to make a concession. And that's where a lot of the, um, the uh, kind of third party payer was born out right. of that, those concessions. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I look, I get the expression when you're writing is that, that you say, it's just like, you're telling us it hasn't always been this way. Mm-hmm. It hasn't always been, not to say that the old way, because you just indicated some things there that wasn't good, you know, doctors overcharging their patients, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But it wasn't always like this. Correct. So this this older model where the patient and doctor kind of work together to try to resolve their problem has been taken over by a phrase that you used, Doc, that I hadn't seen before. You said it's the, let me see if I can pronounce it right, the corporatization mm-hmm. of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And that's this new model. So what is this corporatization of healthcare? You've been talking about it, but help us get a better handle on what that is. Yeah. So it's the idea that you're going to build a lot of um, operational, what I call operational infrastructure. So um, operational infrastructure is uh, people who help you get things done, 
right? And and normally that's a good thing. Like, for example, with the podcast, you have an editor, you have someone, a marketer, you um, have someone to keep your schedule, like an executive assistant. All of those things are how corporations work. And that's actually a good thing, unless you are building those infrastructures in order to just game the system. And so that's what's happening right now with the corporatization of healthcare. The, um, uh, they add multiple layers, multiple managers, managers of managers, um, and lots of middlemen. And then you have to pay and support all of those people. And to do that, you have to pull the money from somewhere. And that's where the problem is, because at the end of the day, um, the doctors are being asked to work more, uh, to uh, code more um, so that they can get paid more from the insurance. And then the insurances themselves have to hire all these people to manage the claims and, and manage all the premiums. And so it, you get a lot of administrative bloat from the corporatization of healthcare. And so my my suggestion is let's, um, let's actively uh, yeah. de-bloat de the bloat I got it. We're going to get into that in a moment, but I still yeah. want to continue poking mm -hmm. on this corporate healthcare industry that we have here. Um, firstly, I'll say as a consumer, it is complicated. You know, uh, you got Medicare, then you got managed plans, and you got, how is this private citizen expected to navigate the system, doctor? Yeah, great question, Stephen. So there's a term, uh, I wrote it in my book, and then I say it, and it, it's actually really hard for me to pronounce for some reason. But anyway, it's obfuscation. So obfuscation, mm. it's where you go out of your way to make something so difficult um, and confusing uh, in order to give get the other person to give up, uh, to, to hide something. And so that's what a lot of these insurance companies are doing. Uh, and sometimes the government, they obfuscate, they create all these hurdles. Hey, I need you to, you know, open enrollment, sign up. And then you sign up and, oh, here's a bronze plan and a silver plan and a this plan. And, and you never, you know, and here's a copay and then there's co-insurance. And then, and you're like, what is, I can't make heads or tails at yeah. any of this, because at some point they're hoping you'll just go, whatever, I'll just, you know, I'll just sign up for whatever and do whatever. And then of course you do that. You pay 500 bucks a month, you try to use it and it doesn't work. Um, and then they go, well, you should have read the plan better. And you're like, I, it right. didn't make any sense to me. Well, you should have called us and we would have explained it to you. Yeah. No, you wouldn't have, right? And so, yeah, obfuscation is what you do when you kind yeah. of have, um, it's almost like you don't want somebody to use your product. So said right. differently, uh, it, uh, one of my business coaches said this and I was like, what? That makes so much sense. He said, if you want to be a successful business, make it easy for people to give you money, Right. Well, in this case, they make it really easy to take your money. Hey, just sign up for a plan. But then when you actually go to use it, they make it very, very difficult. Um, they're right. obfuscating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's confusing to the consumer, to us. Mm -hmm. What about the doctors? I mean, do you oh all have, do you all master this thing? Yeah. 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 So uh, this is one of those things, and I'm no, I'm sure I'm going to tick a whole bunch of people off when I say this. So doctors are, uh, we wear our hearts on our sleeves, um, and so our goal is to help our patients feel better. Um, it is not to count the money, and so we're really bad at that side of things. We just go, hey, this person needs this whatever it costs, just make it happen. And as a result of our um, uh, our negligence of counting the dollars, we've uh, there have been MBAs and other business people who have swooped in to do that for us. And then they end up telling us what to do. So in other words, mm -hmm. we can't control 
pricing and all of that stuff because we've delegated that stuff out and that's totally our fault um uh, it, at the end of uh, at the end of the day so now doctors are working in a system where we have no control and when we try to step outside that system uh, we get smacked down because um, yeah. physicians don't know how to run businesses and so then we get uh, as a result we get bought up by those same corporations they go oh you're about to you know you're in private practice and yeah, it, isn't it hard? Well, we can come in and take it care of that for you. And then they buy yeah. the practice and then, you know, the corporatization continues. Yeah. yeah. I mean, doctors get it too. I mean, I've heard doctors say that, you know, the winning the medicine mm-hmm. to help people, but the system doesn't allow them to do this. And, you know, I mean, so it's, it really gets a little messed up. So, um, gosh, I got another question here along those lines. Where does it? Yes. Some things are incentivized, incentivized, and you've said mm-hmm. it a moment ago. You know, um, I know uh, that there are some women who are, and let me preface this by saying, this is not an attack on doctors. I mm-hmm. mean, doctors are caring people, the vast majority of them, no doubt. But if it's if you get more for a surgical procedure than you would get for something that doesn't require surgery, then it would seem like if you got a $300,000 education cost, you may say to your patient, yeah, this surgery may be helpful. Now, am I making that up or is that something that may, and once again, I'm not attacking doctors, that may you know, come up in, in healthcare? Oh, 100%. So the way I phrase it is that doctors, and as well as everybody else, um, we we are part of a society, and as a society, and we are humans, and as human beings, uh, we all believe that we would like to get more for less, right? I want a hundred return on my investment without doing anything. That's just human nature, and so yeah. So I'm not I'm not mad at anybody who does that. I'm not mad at doctors. I'm not mad at you know, um, uh, uh, when it comes to any sector, right? If you, lots of people are like, I'm going to leave this job and go get another job and they're going to pay me more, right? Well, that's human nature. You want to be acknowledged for what you're doing. It just is supercharged in the healthcare world because someone made that decision um, to pay procedures more. Like if, if that had never come along, we would have way more psychiatrists because it would be a free marketplace of ideas. Like all doctors would be even uh, because we could all charge what we wanted, but because someone, and I still don't know who it was, but someone said, uh, built that, um, uh, someone um, uh, built that into the infrastructure of Medicare that created a skewed system. It's like a, they, they put a, a poison pill in the formula and now we're reaping the results of that formula 70 years into this. Yeah. And the other problem you address, and again, I want you to look at the problems and then we'll look at your solutions, which I think are revolutionary. Um, you you say that, you know, uh, let's say big farmer, mm-hmm. you know, big uh, the pharmaceutical companies, Doc, and you've seen the commercials on television and you heard them on radio. Yep. They make these drugs sound so wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, people are smiling and they are into their lives. And then, of course, real fast, you know, the side effects of those drugs. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, and I, th- I didn't think about this. You said, look, shareholders, shareholders. So who are these pharmaceutical companies trying to benefit? I mean, I'm not saying they're trying to kill us, but they also have to report to someone else. Correct. And so uh, people keep forgetting this. And it's like this weird open secret in our society is that shareholders own those companies, right? So it's people who own stock in pharmaceutical companies. Well, most people 
um, who own stock own it through their 401k or 403b, right? It's a, it's a perk of you being an employee of a, a big industry or a big company or whatever. And so in a sense, people own the companies that are absolutely taking advantage of them uh, medicine-wise. And so it's, yeah, it's just a weird open secret and we have to come to terms with that. We are creating our own misery when it comes to pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical pricing. Yeah, so these companies are trying to make money for their stockholders and the medicine may have some bad effects, but yep. mm -hmm. if it's a moneymaker, they're going to put it into the, into the market. Correct. It's 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 yeah. uh, in it's uh, incentives all over again. This is again human nature. If if you can get something without uh, a a bad effect, you're going to tend to do that more. Um, and a lot of the uh, we call it behavioral conditioning uh, in in the psychological theory world. These these companies know that, right? So that's why they will, you know, put up a pretty picture. Hey, buy this medicine, and yes, it may cause all these side effects. But hey, buy this medicine, and then they um, they make sure to offer stock to those very same people. Um, and you watch your uh, your uh, retirement funds go up because you're also paying more for medicine. It's this weird, twisted system that most people don't even realize is happening. Yeah, but I can hear someone saying, though, in the United States and maybe other countries have similar types of agencies, they'll say we have the federal, the federal drug uh, um, administration, the FDA. Mm -hmm. They're protecting us. Are they protecting us? So the, oh, maybe they are in some areas, but in yeah. terms of drugs, I, yeah. So it is, uh, and that's a, actually that's a very good question. And I'm going to nuance this question. Um, mm -hmm. The FDA's job is safety, like biological safety. It is not financial safety. So they don't really have much bearing over what drugs cost. Um, they do have bearing over if the drugs have a little bit of like patent protection. Um, but yeah, that's why, uh, I don't know if you remember a few years back, there was a dude who went and bought an old medicine that's been around forever, was pennies on the dollar. Um, and so uh, since it was pennies on the dollar, other drug companies stopped making it. And he saw that. And so he went in, he jacked the price up like a thousand percent. And uh, and made a whole bunch of money. His name was Screlly, Um, and I think he's in jail now um, because of some of the other stuff that he was doing. But it, uh, the, and, and the FDA couldn't do anything because the FDA was like, "No, the medicine is still safe. We've done our part." But there's no there's no uh, marketplace financial officer to say, "Hey, guys, don't do that." Um, mm -hmm. And as a capitalist, I would say we don't really need that either. I would say. Um, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. It's it's more of just transparency. Let people know what's happening and then they can decide for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you um, also indicate in your writings that um, that hospitals, some hospitals, I know that there's some private hospitals, I don't, I don't know how they work, but you indicate that they also have shareholders. So yeah. therefore they're in, they're in a business to, to make money. Yeah, so uh, hospitals are weird because there are some for-profit hospitals um, and, and they have boards and they have shareholders. And then there's a whole bunch of non-profit hospitals. And what they do is a little bit more, I don't know if it's sneaky or a little conniving. I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on this because as a non-profit hospital, they can't take the profit out and, you know, pay um, uh, but ideally they can't pay people more. And so instead they go and they just build more buildings and, um, you know, take up more space and, uh, and then create more 
clinics and buy more practices and that sort of thing. And so they are, they call, they cause consolidation in the network, which means that they can then drive the prices up because if they're the only game in town, right? So yeah, but it, it's one of those things where if we had true competition between hospitals um, and physicians could own hospitals, because that's the other thing, physicians can't own hospitals. If they, if we change that, oh my gosh, the, the, the marketplace would change very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, and I didn't consider this part of it, and we'll get into your reform, proposed reforms in a moment, how institutions and corporations are also harmed because they're required to provide healthcare, which, you know, is money taken away, you say, from their workers. I mean, tell us about this. So how do you see this? What's happening? How yeah. does um, healthcare adversely affect the bottom line for employees? Yeah, so healthcare is really expensive. Um, it's so expensive that I can't even provide it to my employees. And I tell them that when I hire them, I'm like, look, we're not big enough and we don't make enough money for me to, uh, for us to justify the expense. And so I'm just going to pay you more and then encourage you to go buy your care directly from whoever is providing it. Because that's what I do. So I'm a physician and I have a primary care doctor and I literally just go pay him cash. Uh, anytime I see him and his rates for cash are reasonable because I'm not, you know, having to go in there very often. And so, yeah, um, one of the blessings and the curses of the Affordable Care Act is that when you, when as a government, we said, oh, you well, you have to provide, you know, coverage and you have to do this, that and the other, but it's a commodity that you don't have any control over, right? I have no control over the prices that Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or, or Cigna are paying, then you get trapped. And trust when I say they're going to get their money from somewhere. And so making making um, um, kind of um, uh, capturing those people and putting them in that system just drives the cost up for everybody. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not a uh, the Affordable Care Act did some good things, but I'm not a huge fan of putting one more uh, requirement in the, the marketplace that's going to skew the system. Okay. Okay. So let's look at, it. I've been teasing this for a few minutes now. You say <laughs> there's a better way, you know, there's oh, yeah. a better way. So, so would you walk us through it in, in bite sizes so we can get a grip on what, what this is all about? What's yeah. your better way? Yeah. So um, uh, uh, the first thing that I want to do since I've written that book, um, I, uh, people will you know, ask me, you know, hey, explain it to me. And so I start explaining it. And sometimes I have a difficult um, understanding of it. So instead, I'm going to start at the end and work backwards. So okay. if you think about how we uh, provide water in this country, that's essentially what I'm saying we need to do. So the way that we do water in this country is most places, most states have some type of water board or some type of regional authority that manages the water. Everybody pays into that system, mostly through your taxes, right? And then you, uh, and that builds the infrastructure and then um, you pay per use. So if you want a pool, if you want to make a cake, if you want to take a bath, you pay per use. And so it is a hybrid system of social network, meaning you pay through your taxes and then pay per use. Well, that's the exact same thing I'm uh, proposing with healthcare, but we do it out on a state level. So each state creates a, a um, nonprofit company. Everybody buys into that company by paying some type of fee. And if you don't, uh, if you don't meet the financial requirements, that's okay. We can, we can waive that fee for you. Uh, but everybody pays into it, and that creates a pool of money that you can pull out for preventative care only. 
right? That keeps us um, healthy um, uh, on a, at a baseline. And then all the rest of your money that you have in your pocket, you then can go and buy your sick care from whoever you want to, be that a doctor, be that a physician assistant, nurse practitioner. If you want to travel between states, go do that. If you want to do telemedicine, go do that. But you keep all of your money in your pocket, other uh, minus the money that you pay for your general membership fee. So that's, yeah. that, that's it in a nutshell. Okay. You know, I can hear the critics say, this sounds like socialized medicine, <laughs> and, you know, and where's that going to get us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody said, I, I, people, and this is, uh, I read a book that uh, I think it's like the 10 obligations by um, Richard um, Haas. And um, it's one of those things where people throw around a, a whole bunch of loaded terms and they don't know what it means. So when it comes to socialism, this isn't socialism, this is capitalism. It's a, it's a hybrid in a sense, because again, mm -hmm. Nobody in this country dies from thirst. Nobody in this country even blinks an eye at the fact that, yes, you pay for your water infrastructure every time you pay your water bill. And, and, yeah. and, and generally, it works very, very well, except for in Flint yeah. and Jackson, Mississippi, right? Uh, Flint, Michigan right. and Jackson, Mississippi. And so, yeah, so this isn't, this isn't pure socialism or communism. This is capitalism. It's just very thoughtful capitalism. And I think that's what we need to do when it comes to, um, to healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I mean, because you, as you say in your writings, you know, healthcare is like water and food. We need it. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. And, you know, I think it's akin to electricity. You know, we need, you know, electrical power. We need to be able to buy light bulbs. And can you imagine a, a society and a world whereby there are no controls? You know, the manufacturers would be killing all of us, you know. Correct. So, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a delicate wow. balance. Yeah. It's regulation, uh, but as well as a little bit of free market is capitalism, but it's also a little bit of compassion. I mean, it's a delicate balance, right. but the key is mm -hmm. let the people take responsibility for it. Cause at the end of the day, yeah. they are paying for it. So yeah, it, the, yeah. my system, in my opinion, my, my system incentivizes people to take care of yeah. themselves. Whereas the, okay. the old system doesn't. Yeah. I want to push back a little bit on because I could, I could hear someone saying, can you trust people to do the right thing for themselves, you know, and I think that's a fair question to ask. You know, if I got extra money, am I going to invest in my health? Or I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah, and this is, uh, yeah, I, I always say you have the constitutional right to make stupid choices as long as it doesn't, you know, hurt somebody else. So that's literally written uh -huh. into the Constitution. Yes, um, right. for example, I mean, I love. Uh, I'm in Texas and I love Whataburger and. Uh, and it's uh, delicious and wonderful, but if you eat it every day, it's probably not a good idea. Well, mm -hmm. I, I make that choice to do that, but I also am taking on the consequences. Hey, my blood sugar may go up. My cholesterol may go up. I'm going to be responsible for that. I want people to be able to do that. Same thing with cigarettes. Like we know mm -hmm. cigarettes are bad. There is zero redeeming healthcare value to cigarettes. Um, why don't we take them off the market? Well, because you have a constitutional right that if you want to do that, um, then that's your prerogative. You're going to have to pay seven bucks a, a, a packet um, uh, for a pack. Um, but we need to, that, that's your right. Now, on the flip side, what's not being passed through is the responsibility of when you get sick, right? Um, yes, your insurance premiums are probably more than other people's, but uh, we need to pass more of that on and that will incentivize people to stop smoking because the mm -hmm. one thing that we know helps with smoking is price. It's not putting pictures on the, the package. It's, hey, when I charge you $10 a pack, people stop smoking. So. Right. So does your, does your proposed plan include education so that people could learn 
how to take better care of themselves. For example, insights into lifestyle medicine or plant-based nutrition or whatever. Does your yeah. plan include that, that, that as well? So Stephen, it doesn't directly delineate those things, but it's one of the, it's, it's really funny. We know how to eat. So if I showed anybody in this country that food pyramid, everybody would go, oh yeah, that's the food pyramid, right? Everybody knows it. Even now, everybody knows it. Well, why aren't we acting on it? Well, because we're not incentivized to do so. There's no, there's no repercussion. So if I said, hey, if you don't stick to this, I'm going to take $100 out of your bank account right now. Trust me, people would go, well, well let me pay attention, right? So right now, there's no, uh, there's too many layers between um, the stimulus and the, the consequence. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so I'm all about educating, but I'm here to tell you, we get that education now, we're just not listening to it. You know, that's interesting. Boy, that's pretty clear because what you're saying is that, look, we know how to eat. You know, we know that vegetables are better than yep. eating something else every day. Yep. But we just don't do it. Correct. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Well, look, this has been a, a fun uh, conversation with you. Uh, before I let you go, though, is there anything else you care to share with us that we haven't already talked about? Yeah, uh, it's just that that uh, I don't want to demonize the system or the individual, um, as they say in the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, right? So it's the idea that all of us are complicit in where we are right now. Um, all of us, like the fact that foster care is so bad, especially in Texas, the the fact that people can't access quality care, the fact that um, uh, we're uh, overeating uh, and we throw away 40% of our food, all of these things where we're like, man, that's messed up. Well, each of us mm -hmm. has a, a role in that. And so I'm hoping that as the Possibility Action Network, uh, a key emphasis on the word action, it, it, those individual actions, we need to start to tweak what we do individually um, so that then socially we'll get even better change. So that's that's my hope and my goal. And I'm glad that you're, you know, you have a forum where we can get that message out there to people. Well, I'm glad that you're doing this work. And there you have it, folks, from Dr. Brian Dixon. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today has been Dr. Brian Dixon. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day. Good day.